You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. I think we're in our fifth or sixth, maybe seventh week in our current series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. I'm not sure the exact week. Travis has helped me teach this this summer and done a fabulous job. Thank you, Pastor Travis, just for teaming up with me. And some weeks I've been gone. I, I've listened online, either, either live in the moment or after the fact, and I learned so much and love the way you handle the platform. I appreciate that. So this is our fifth or sixth, seventh week. And I need to make sure that you understand something about this series that we've not explained yet. It's kind of a big word, so I want to kind of make sure you, you get this. We are in a series that is presuppositional in nature. Can you say the word with me? Presuppositional, which means... That in teaching this series, we are assuming certain things. We're assuming that God's word is true. We're assuming there is a God. We're assuming that we believe those things. So when we go to analyze the doctrine that we know goes the distance, that holds us in place till the very end, there are some assumptions we're making. If we weren't making those assumptions, this would be an apologetics series. Are you with me? We'd be trying to explain to you why we believe these things are true and coming to you historically in other ways like that, but we're making some assumptions. So those are presuppositions that we hold as we teach our doctrine. However, this week, at least in the beginning, we don't need any presuppositions. You say, what do you mean, Todd? Now, later on we will. We'll go to the Bible for the answer. But we don't need any presuppositions for this realization. Something just isn't right in the world. Now, hear me out. You can be an atheist, an agnostic. You can be a Christian. You could be a, another ism. And we can arrive at different answers as to what's wrong in the world and why it's wrong in the world and what the answer is. But I would submit to you that every person on this planet can look around them and say, uh, something's not right. Maybe you're just an evolutionary humanist who believes that it will all end in utopia. You would have to admit, though, it's not there yet, wouldn't you? You see, I think there is this innate understanding in human beings that there's something wrong in the world. Why do we murder and kill and rape and steal and lie and destroy? Like, again, we can have different answers to that question. Those will demand presuppositions. But on that one uh, acknowledgement, nothing's needed but this one realization that we all would look around and say, something's just not right. Adding to that is the fact that you think that when you look inside. Now, no one here is going to wave their hand and say, I'm there, Todd, because this is one of those private moments where you'll agree, but you won't dare nod your head. When you've laid in bed at night or you've been driving your car and a thought comes across your mind and you're like, who, who put that thought there Why did I think that? I would never do that. I can't believe I just thought that. But you look inside and you can think and say, and something's not right in there. Where did that come from? You've had those scary moments. So can we just all acknowledge, before we dive into this week's doctrine, that when we look around and when we look in, it's clear 
no matter where you land, spiritually, religiously, philosophically, doctrinally, something just isn't right. I want to try to answer that question this morning. Why is something not right? What's gone wrong in the world? What's gone wrong in us? And here's where our presuppositions begin. Because I would contend and submit to you that God's word provides the answers for what's gone wrong. It's contained within the doctrine of sin. The technical word for this is hamartiology. Can you say that with me? Hamartiology. Now you can all say you've got like a seminary degree, right? It's just a classic, uh, you know, $10 word for the doctrine of sin. And it's what encapsulates our understanding and theological beliefs about the fall of man and how God judged sin. Um, what happened on the cross. There's a lot contained, uh, contained in this. But we're going to look today at the doctrine of sin, for it does explain to us what's wrong in the world. To do so, I want to ask about three questions. I want to say, I want to ask ourselves what happened. I want to talk about what that means to us, and then I want to talk about the solution. In between questions two and three, I'll take a few questions. And if first service is an indication, I will not know the answers to most of those. I was kind of prepared this week, like most of these things about sin we'll be able to handle. They're probably going to be textbook questions. But man, we got some doozies in first service. I think the one that we answered, I, I think it was, a, it was a foul ball at best. I'll be honest with you. I took a swing and like, oh man, get back in the dugout, you know. But, uh, but feel free to text them in between questions two and three. We'll tackle them. Um, we might want to answer them later personally or on our blog, but I think we'll go after them. Then I want to kind of end with a chance to explain to you the solution. And in this service today, we're going to have a chance for us to respond. So I'm going to give you a heads up on that. I'll ask you to make some visible movement towards the message and, and the meaning of the message and, and what we do about our sin, all right? So just be praying about that and be thinking about it. Let's begin by asking the first question, what is the cause then of what's gone wrong in the world? What happened that has left us in the mess we're in? In short, the two-word answer is Adam sinned. Say that with me. Adam sinned. This is recorded for us in Genesis 3, but I don't want you to turn there. I want you to instead find Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verses 12 and 19 will kind of lay out for us what we're going to see in a moment. But I want to, first of all, review Genesis 3 with you just by showing you a couple of scriptures from there. Don't turn there in your Bible. Just kind of mark this down because in Genesis 3, we have the fall of man or we could easily say the fall of Adam. He's the representative of the human race. He's the first earthly man. He's the first, we say, our first earthly father. Satan came to both of them, his wife Eve and him, and, and tempted them, and they sinned. They disobeyed God's law. They ate what they were not supposed to eat. And in doing so, they violated God's command. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, we read this. Here's where we find a very interesting phrase that they realized they were both naked and they hid themselves. So upon their sin, their, their eyes were opened. And they knew they were naked. For the first time in the existence of human mankind, shame has now entered the universe. So if you ever wonder what sin brings, sin for sure brings shame. It didn't exist before sin. But sin, shame now enters the human universe. They knew they were naked. And by the way, this isn't that they were ashamed to be naked in front of each other as married partners. They were now realized that they were exposed before God. They were no longer innocent some would even use the word perfect. They knew neither sin was ever present. 
And, and they were left to their own devices to be made right with God, which is why in verse 7 it says they took their, their hand at the first act of self-justification. They went after self-righteousness hard, uh, really hot and heavy, didn't they? Here's moralism on display, if I've ever seen it. starts off with the first man and woman. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What do you think, Eve? You think this will work before God? <laughs> Adam, what do you think about this outfit? You think God will be pleased? <laughs> Isn't it amazing? From the beginning of time, man has always tried to make themselves right with God of their own effort. But it didn't work, by the way, when God came looking for them. They came out of the bushes. And I imagine they came out of the bushes with their loincloths on. <laughs> imagine that picture. With their fig leaves in place. I imagine they were coming out slowly, creeping towards Yahweh. But the ensuing conversation was this. God cursed the man, the woman, the ground, and the serpent. He judged their sin. And then, an interesting phrase in verse 23. God sent him out of the garden. Which I think, uh, I'm beginning to realize this may have been the, 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 the bigger punishment. Because it involves separation from God. So what you have in verse 7 is violation. Oh, we have disobeyed God. Here in verse 23, separation. Violation, Separation. Verse 24 says he drove out the men. Can you imagine God driving you out? This is God's response to their sin. You've disobeyed. You can no longer be in my presence in an innocent, perfect fashion. This is where it all started. Adam sinned. But it wasn't just Adam's violation and then God driving him out, separation. And we look back at that and say, well, too bad for Adam. At least that's not us. It has rippled out from that point forward and for every century since Every man and woman is infected. We're in, we've inherited the same problem. This is what Romans 5 alludes to with some very clear statements. Look at verse 12, Romans chapter 5. We'll be in Romans 5 and 7 most of the day as we discuss the doctrine of sin. Here Paul says, it wasn't just that Adam's sin brought death upon Adam and his family. Verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread to all men. All humankind now bear the the consequence of Adam's sin. Because, look at this next two words, all sinned. Now you can say to me, that's not fair. And I would say, yeah, it doesn't sound real fair, does it? But I can't change what's written or, or, or undo the doctrine. As the head of the human race, what we'd call our federal head, Adam's sin has now been... Uh, passed down to every single person born ever since. To the extent that God sees us as sinners in an equal fashion. Verse 19 repeats this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for how many men? All men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So we're going to concentrate on the first phrase, at least for now. Here again, Paul just simply repeats. What Adam did has a rippling, perpetual action to it. So watch this. Adam violates the command of God. He's separated now by sin from the presence of God, and he's under the condemnation of God. So violation, separation, and now condemnation, and that is what we are under Because of Adam's sin. Let me give you some theological classroom words for all this language. We're on a series of doctrines. I want to make sure you have some kind of handles to carry this around. 
we would say that we now have inherited legal guilt and we have an inherited sinful nature. Some denominations use the word original guilt. Original sin. Some of you are nodding now. You're like, that's what I learned it as. I prefer the word inherited. Um, Because though we were um, represented by Adam, it's it's Adam's sin that we inherit, the, the consequence, the guilt, the nature of that. And so we are now under the consequence of Adam's sin as well. So we have this inherited legal guilt before God. We're born in sin, and so we stand before God as guilty. Even though you didn't eat the fruit yourself, because Adam is your federal head, he represents us, we are guilty as well, and we are born with a sin nature. So everyone from Adam is inheriting these things from birth forward. Legal guilt before God and a sinful nature innate within us. Now, let me pause here and explain how we got those two things. Because this is maybe a splitting hairs moment. Either one of these views works scripturally. Okay, But I want to take some time to explain how people say we got these two things. Because there's some debate among Reformed theologians and those who aren't necessarily Reformed. They're both godly men. They're both godly women. They, they, they believe and they're saved. They, they love Jesus. But they some believe that we... Inherited legal guilt and a sinful nature in a federal type of way. They would say we, are, we believe in federal headship. And so Adam represents us, and they would cling to verse 19 as their proof text. Look at Romans 5, 19, would you? It says that uh, as one trespass led to condemnation, um, uh, excuse me, one man's disobedience, uh, many were made sinners. See that in verse 19? The idea of being made a sinner. So we are in Adam in the sense that he represents us, and so his sin carries on to us and we're made sinners it's the federal headship kind of idea that's where I land personally uh, I would fall in that camp uh, the other camp is those who would say I'm a naturalist I believe in natural headship which means that we were somehow in Adam so they would say we're not represented by Adam but we were somehow in Adam they would cling to verse 12 as their proof text notice in verse 12 and by the way both of these hold pretty good water I'll be honest with you it's not um, matter where you land on this in my opinion it's a splitting of hairs for the fun of it probably i look at verse 12 it says that when adam sinned death spread because these last two words all sin so they would say no you weren't made a sinner you actually committed the sin i was talking to a naturalist recently who believes this we were kind of debating each other and arguing and laughing and and he says somehow todd you and i were in adam so i said well was it like this spiritual embryo kind of floating around somewhere and and he knew, he knew to say no to that because you're not, you know, as a spirit waiting to get a body. That's not what we believe. The Bible didn't teach that. He said, no, I can't explain how it happens or how it works, but we don't believe we're just represented. We believe we're actually in Adam responsible as if we did the sin. I said, I think Adam sinned and we were made sinners. He's our representative. So we just kind of laughed, had a good time. Where you land on that, it probably doesn't matter, but I wanted you to have those views because we're kind of in a doctrinal series. I want you to learn some things. Regardless of where you land, the end result is this. You are a sinner, and the reason is because Adam sinned and passed on now this legal guilt and this sinful nature to every single person born since. In fact, write this reference down, Psalm 51.5. David writes this in his chapter of repentance. He writes an interesting phrase, In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, that doesn't mean that 
there was some illicit act going on when David was conceived or even in his birth and, and like his mother was sinning when she had David. That's not what they're trying to say. David's saying that when he was born, he was in sin at that moment. David is affirming, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this idea that we got something from Adam, even though we didn't necessarily do it ourselves, we are the descendants of the first federal head of the human race. Because he sinned, we now are all legally guilty and have a sinful nature. There's some words for this, okay? Um, Words like captivity and depravity. Let's talk about those for a bit. Because we are legally guilty before God. Because we have a sinful nature from Adam. Because sin has now tainted every person born from Adam forward. We are under the law and guilty. That's called captivity. We're born into captivity to sin. And we're also born into depravity to sin. It means we're in bondage to sin. Watch this. By nature and choice. And what we're saying here is this. There is a bondage of the will that has occurred from the moment you're born. That's how the Puritan writers refer to this often. They'd say there's a bondage of the will. And it refers to your captivity and your depravity. Now, when we speak of depravity, we're not speaking that everyone is as bad as they could be. That would be called utter depravity. And there are people like that, by the way, right? But God's common grace and even the conscience he gave us often staves off the full effects of depravity so that... What we see is actually total depravity, though not always utter depravity. What does that mean, Todd? I'm really confused here. Total depravity speaks to that effect of sin where it taints every single part of our being. So let's take Keith and Cars here. They may say, you know what? Uh, we don't trust our emotions. We're going to use our mind, and we're going we're to make the right decision. That's actually a good goal, but guess what? Their mind is tainted with sin as well. So it's actually not any more trustworthy in one sense. Someone may say, well, I don't trust my mind. Uh, I trust my emotions. I just got to feel it. Okay, perhaps that works for you, but guess what? Your emotions are tainted by sin. Your intellect, your emotions, your psyche, your physical body, every single part of your existence in its totality is affected by depravity. So that's total depravity. But in that, you may not be utterly depraved because you may... Like, you know, I, I don't think I should do that over there. That seems like that's not right. And so you don't do that. You're not sure why you don't do it. Well, let's take some pagan in Africa or a lost person in Des Moines. They may not go shoot and kill and rape. They don't know why they just have this innate, like, that's, that's not right. So something's staving off their utter depravity. It's God's common grace. It's God's moral law. It's God's effect in the, in the, in the universe even those who don't even recognize it. Does that make sense? So keep these words in mind. We are all depraved totally in every aspect of our being. We call that pervasive depravity. But not everyone exemplifies utter depravity. I will say this to you, though. Romans 1 shows us a digression of of depravity in that if we continue, the person who continues to say no to God will move eventually from total depravity to utter depravity. And the only thing that really causes that to happen is the consistent no to God. So if you think, wow, I could never do that. No, you actually could do that. You keep telling God no. You keep telling God no. You keep telling God no. He will turn you over to the full effect of your sin, Romans 1. And you'll begin to say, wow, what am I... You'll see things happen. That's what's happening there. So just keep that in mind. Total depravity often is exemplified in utter depravity by those who continue to say no to God. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're as bad as we could be. It just means that every part of our being is tainted by sin. So there's some words you ought to know about as we think about the doctrine of sin. Captivity, depravity, it's all part of this idea of inherited guilt and inherited sin nature. Now, just to make this very practical, I know you're, you're learning these words, you're hearing them, you're like, okay, that's what we believe, that's doctrine, we don't negotiate that. But just be honest, the little baby that, that you gave birth to recently, or that one that's sitting by you now that's 13, you're like, I remember when you were born, or you know, maybe they're beside you and they have their own kid, you're a grandparent. Yeah, they were cute when they were born, I know. But they were sinful. They were born in sin. From the moment they existed, they were in captivity, in bondage, and depraved. It just took a while for that to be seen, but not very long, amen? <laughs> in fact, I was reminded of this last night. Julie and I were walking along the sidewalk, just a block from our house, in fact. We had just started. We were down by East Elementary. And this is just proof positive that we don't have to teach people how to be depraved, that we don't have to teach the fact that we're under the bondage of the will, that we're in captivity to sin, that we will do what our inherited sinful nature tells us to do without much practice. We were walking along, and, and I was surprised by a, a little kid on my left, a really small kid, actually pretty young, um, riding a bike. And I said, oh, excuse me, I thought I was in his way. He said, no, I want to ask you a question. So he's still pedaling. We're still walking. And I think you and I are both kind of surprised, like, oh, he wants to talk to us. And he said, uh, yeah, you got any money for charity? Remember, he's pedaling, we're walking. I'm like, um, not on me. No, I don't have any money for charity. What charity? He goes, I'm raising money for an orphanage. Now, at this point, if you're a very compassionate mother, you may have issues with me. But I'm going to tell you how the story unfolded and what I think happened, okay? I said, oh, an orphanage. And my radar kind of went, no, no, no. Like, something's up here, something's up here, you know. But I thought, maybe so. So I said, oh, I said, well, we actually help an orphanage in South Africa. Um, but what's the orphanage you're raising money for? He says, uh, there's one in Des Moines. I don't know the name of it, though. I said, okay. I said, well, I don't have any money on me. He said, well, never mind. Thanks a lot. He rides off. And 10, 20 feet later, his friend appears from the bushes in his bike saying, what did the man say? So they rode off together, and we know the one little kid and, from the neighborhood. And so I put all that together, and I, here's what I think happened. I think they were setting up a racket for me. <laughs> they wanted some money out of my pockets. I don't, and if I'm wrong, correct me compassionately. I don't think there's an orphanage in Des Moines. So here's what happened. I think that those two little boys didn't go to their mom and dad and say, Hey, mom, dad, can, can you help me learn a way... Not to be so generous with my money, but can I can get some money from other people who, who really don't want to give it. Can you help me learn how to do that? That never happened. Instead, they probably sat in the backyard like, hey, you know what we could do? We could ride our bikes, and we could probably scam some people out of some money and tell them we're raising it for an orphanage. They probably believe us. We could take it. Now, you may think that's being a little crude on my, on my part, but you know what? I think that's what went on. And you don't have to teach that. That comes, say it with me, naturally. And every thought you've had when you were a kid or an adult, and every thought I've had to deceive someone, lie to someone, or to manipulate to get your way, that came pretty naturally. You weren't taught that. You got it from your first earthly father. And it comes pretty natural because you're in bondage to sin, you're captive to do his will, and you're depraved totally, though not utterly. It starts when we're little, doesn't it? So there's the doctrine of sin right there. I mean... That's some terms and some examples of how pervasive and how total it is.
The result is that we now sin. This is not a hard leap to make logically. (laughs) If Adam's sin nature, the effect of it, its consequences, if his violation, separation, and condemnation now are felt by every single person born ever since, if as the federal head of the human race, we now are part of Adam's sin, what would you think would follow next? We too would sin. And Paul discusses this in Romans 7. So he lays out the situation of Adam's sin how it spread to all men and death has spread to all men. And in Romans 7, he kind of elaborates more on what that looks like. I'm just going to pick a certain part of this chapter out to read to you. But I want you to notice verse 14 through about verse 21. And I want you to notice how he starts. He, he begins this section by explaining uh, and by setting it up by saying this. This is what it's like to be sold under sin, to be of the flesh. I don't think Paul here is trying to explain the way he feels all the time as a person in Christ. I don't think he's saying that this uh, illustrates his current life all the time. I think he's trying to say, hey, here's what it's like under sin, depraved, captive. Here's what it's like to be, as he uses the phrase, sold under sin. In other words, we start out this way. We're of the flesh. And so some of that's kind of, un, it's kind of backing the way he explains this. Look what he says. You'll, you'll resonate with this. I do not understand my own actions. I mean, you ever thought that? Like, man, why did I just do that? Why did I think that? You ever just couldn't understand? Like, where is this coming from? I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So something, watch this, Paul's saying, it's not just that there's something on the outside saying I should do this or shouldn't do that. Paul says there's something in me driving this this desire to sin. He's explaining what it means to be sold under sin, to be of the flesh. He's saying there's something internally wrong. He's speaking about depravity, captivity, this inherited guilt, inherited sin nature. Let's keep reading. I know that nothing good dwells in me. Remember, he's explaining what it means to be sold under sin. He's saying, there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh. He's not speaking of his life in Christ right now. He's just saying, as a, as a human who comes into this world, there's nothing in my flesh that merits any favor. Nothing good in that. It's depraved. It's captive. I do what I don't want to do. I don't even understand the things I don't want to do. He says, I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. So here's this, this voice of conscience that speaks sometimes to Paul. Like, and he's saying, there's times you think, man, I, I should do that. But then he doesn't. Why? Because there's no power to make the flesh do the right things on a long-term basis apart from Christ. This is what it means to be sold in our sin, to be of the flesh. We'll have this sin nature always just crippling us. This depravity will always show up. Our captivity will always be in front of us. Which is why he says... I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. That's life in the flesh. That's a definition of soul under sin. You'll just do what you don't want to do. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, the point is this. It's like time that phrase has been mentioned. Paul's not saying that sin is an external thing that comes in and, and, and does something externally, like forces you, even though there are pressures of the world and the flesh and the devil. He's saying sin is at its core an internal issue for every human being. 
Something dwells within you that sometimes it's just hard to figure out, and, and you're like, what is going on? It's called sin. This does not relieve you of responsibility. You can't say the devil made me do it, okay? But it does explain at least what's going wrong. It's the inherited sin nature and the inherited guilt. It's the fact that we are born with this thing called sin thanks to Adam. Which is why he says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, say these last words with me, evil lies close at hand. Have you ever felt that way? Like every, every corner you turn, every step you make, it's like, man, I cannot get rid of this struggle I'm in. You're right, because it's, it's in us. It's the sin nature, and we got it from Adam. So just as he sinned and passed death onto us, so now we sin, and the consequence of that for all of us is death. So it's a stark reality here, isn't it? How sin started and now what we do, we sin as well. Maybe you're wondering, Todd, what is the definition of sin? If you're saying that we sin and it's within us and that, not that we can't help it, but as a person, let's say, without Christ or just looking at the fleshly picture alone, that it will just, it will, it will captivate us, dominate us. It has us in bondage. We are depraved. So what does that look like, Todd? Let me give you a couple of biblical definitions. Sin is, in the most biblical sense, missing the mark. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. So it's an archery type of term. It's a competitor's term. And in that culture, uh, in an archery situation, when they would let the arrow go, it would strike the target. And however far it was from the bullseye, each of those circles would be called a, a sin. That would be the amount of distance. So the score would often shout back to the archer, sin three, meaning that you shot the arrow and you were three circles away from, from bullseye, from perfection. You may be sin one. Someone could be sin 12. But Paul is saying in those terms, everyone has sinned. No one's hit the bullseye. So in God's economy, the Holy Spirit calls out our scorecard. Travis Walker, sin six. Man, I'd go, Travis. Lon Monahan, sin three. Whoa, Lon. Todd Styles, sin 94. Barry Miller, sin 433. Let's go around the room. You get the point. Now, we, in our human mind, we say, oh, Travis and Lon are doing better. That's not what God says. God says, oh, no one's at the bullseye, everyone sinned. Which is why Romans 1 through 3 is really Paul just saying, you know what? You can say you're sin 2, sin 3, sin 12, but every Jew, every Gentile, they're all under condemnation, for all have sinned. See, no one here has hit the bullseye. And I'm explaining to you why. You may say, no, Todd, I've really kept the law, like the rich young ruler in the New Testament. I've done well at this. I've really obeyed. No, you have a nature problem as well. And you see, you cannot deal with the inherited sin nature. You might can deal with your sinful acts, and you might can deal with your sinful attitudes, but you cannot deal with what was given you at birth, your sin nature. We need someone outside of us who doesn't have that nature to come in and change ours. Are you with me, guys? 
So I want you to realize, it's the world's philosophy, it's the good works, uh, good works kind of belief system that says, oh, sin one's better than sin three, he'll get in, she'll get in. God says, no, it doesn't matter if you're sin point two. All have sinned. If you're missing the bullseye, you're out. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. It's also called in James, not doing what is good. James 4.17 says this, if you know what to do and you don't do it to him, it is sin. So there's a couple of biblical definitions. I think the way to kind of tile those together is simply say this, that sin is any failure to conform to the law of God and act attitude or nature. When you miss the mark, when you don't do what is good, whether it's a sin of omission or a sin of commission, you are sinning. And this presents to us, now listen very carefully, a predicament, and I've said this before for a number of years, it, it puts us in an, eternal, in, in an eternal predicament that we suddenly are faced with this, this looming obstacle. What do I do about that? If what you're saying, Todd, that the Bible teaches I have inherited guilt and inherited nature that automatically makes me a sinner by nature and choice, if by birth and action I am guilty before God, if I'm under condemnation because of Adam's violation, if I too am separated from God by my sin and guilty of Adam's as well, I mean, if, if all this is true, what in the world do I do? Because that question must loom large to you because there's nothing you can do within yourself. You can't take care of the nature issue, it's from birth. And even if you want to take care of the action and attitude issue, you don't have the power to do what is right, Paul said, because of sin that dwells in you. We are presented with a stark issue. What do we do about our sin? Before I answer that, let's see if we have any other questions that have come in. And I'm hoping these people have been nice. Uh, these, this could be really quick or really embarrassing. <laughs> let's take a shot at a couple of questions, can we? What hope do we have for infants who die? Is the age of accountability a false doctrine? No, I don't think the age of accountability is a false doctrine. I can say no to that. There may be other terms we'll use, um, but that's a separate question that would take longer to answer. I'll address that in my blog this week. How does that sound, okay? Let me address the first one. We have the hope uh, for infants that is rooted in what David said about his child. We don't understand all about this, so I'm giving you information that we know not information we don't know, okay? There are good men and women who fall on different sides of this as well. Here's where I land, and here's where I root that answer. And I think I could speak for most of our staff on this. I'm waiting for a nod from Travis maybe as well. We'll see. Uh, but here, here's kind of where, where I land, and here's why. We do know this. David said about the child that died, once he was told that his child died, he cannot come to me, but I can go to him. So David is speaking with some level of confidence that his uh, child of a week older or less was with God because he knew he was going to be with God. How did that occur? How did God do that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, are there scriptures that we know, uh, could they contradict that in some ways that would say, well, um, there's, there's a lot to that question. I land as a pastor and as a aspiring theologian that whatever David knew about God's character and graciousness to his one week old baby I'll cling to for other babies of parents that I minister to 
That's the best answer I can give, and it provides hope for us who have uh, those of us who have infants who die. I know you have like 816 more questions now. We'll cover those maybe in the next 20 years as we walk together. Okay, deal. Good question. Second question, how did God deal with man's sin before Jesus? Was it solely through blood sacrifice? God dealt with sin the same way he deals with sin now. By grace, through faith. Let me explain this to you. Someone asked me this in the first first service after it was over. Well, Todd, what did they have to put their faith in? They looked forward to the cross and God's revelation of a coming Messiah is what they trusted in. We, on the other side of the cross, have the information, the revelation of a, of a Messiah who came, and we look back and put our faith in that. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Okay, To believe otherwise is to think that God changed, that somehow He's different now. He's not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there are different ways He works within that economy. But prior to the cross, it was by grace through faith. God intervened sovereignly without respect to man or his goodness or badness and saved people who trusted in what God would do in the future. Likewise today, God intervenes in people, good or bad, and says, if you'll trust in what I've done for the sin of people, I will save you. Does that make sense? So I would say to you, he dealt with their sin the same way he does ours. One was looking to the cross. Now we're looking back to the cross. Was it solely through blood sacrifice? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So yes. Now were there other sacrifices, a fruit offering, a grain offering? Yes, but if I'm not mistaken, I might need to check my Leviticus notes on this. Uh, It was the blood sacrifice, the annual day of atonement that dealt with sin from that perspective. And so we would say, yes, it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9. Good question. I hope those were sufficient answers. I escaped. I do like that section of the service. I really like taking those questions. I think those questions show us that we are grappling with this eternal predicament. What do we do about sin? Even those questions, there's presuppositions there like, okay, well, God must have to step in because we can't deal with it. I want to talk about that with you for a bit, okay? And again, I'm leading to a response time. So I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to really just uh, pray even while you're sitting there. God would work in our hearts because I think this bring some great weight upon our decisions. The only solution to a situation that is innate to us has to be something outside of us. And so God did that. He moved on our behalf and sent himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to bear the sin of mankind. John says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. So God took care of sin through Jesus. Let me show you what this says in Romans 5. Again, we're in these two chapters mainly. I want to focus on verses 15 through about, oh, let's say verse 21. I'll show you a few on the screen, but I'll just read the entire passage, and Felicia will follow with me as as we read through this. Notice how it begins verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. Remember? The discussion's been Adam sinned, now we're all sinners. He brought condemnation and death for all men, so this is an unfair sinking ship, and we're in it. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Okay, how's it not like it? If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, 
abounded for many. In the, in the trespass, it was death for many, but in Christ's offering of his life, it's life for many. In fact, if you'll notice in these verses that we're reading, the words free gift are mentioned five times. The word grace is mentioned five times, and the idea of abundance or abounding is mentioned three times. He's contrasting and comparing the, the incredible effect of grace over sin. So the solution to sin is the grace of God, but where is the grace of God seen? Grace has a name. Its name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had a mission to come and destroy the works of the devil. So in this passage, he's not using grace as some nebulous concept. He's using grace as a way to describe the work of Jesus Christ who came from God on our behalf. Look what he says. He continues. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Okay, how is it not like the result? The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, it brought justification. So if you're in line with Adam, if you, pardon the pun, fall in with Adam, all you stand to gain is condemnation. Death. Guilt. You have it inherited and you'll get it eventually in judgment. But if you stand with Christ, the Bible here says it's justification. That's the word for imputed righteousness. God gives you something that you don't deserve. It's the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because of Christ's work on your behalf. He justifies you because of what Christ did. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, they'll reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Everyone has the response to give. Will you stay in line with Adam or will you get in line with Jesus? How will you deal with your sin? Will you try to keep making fig leaves? Will you keep trying to stitch together some loincloths? Will you come before God in all of your nakedness and all of your shame and say, I need the free gift that Jesus brought. I need the grace of God to cover me. One will leave you with condemnation. That's Adam's line. If that's all you have, if fig leaves, loincloths, self-righteousness, and moralism are all you have, you'll never be covered. One leaves you justified, alive, without death. He goes on to say in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass, and you'll see in here, Paul is so repetitive, isn't it? I, mean, I can just see him preaching this, writing this. You can, um, he's just kind of on a roll here. He says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, and by the way, if you had to pick one word to describe Christ's work, or what we would call the gospel it is the word obedience. And this, ver- this is verified through Philippians 2. When Christ took upon himself the form of a servant and he obeyed the Father's will and went to the cross. Obedience. So Christ's one act of obedience contrasted to Adam's one act of disobedience. It says here, that's how many are made righteous. Now I love verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, and be sure it does, by the way. Sin is increased. Every generation, every century, sin just piles up, doesn't it? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigns in death, and we see that happening, don't we? 
People are born, we're depraved, we're captive, we sin, we die. Watch this. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is so beautifully descriptive here of a single act that occurred in which God showed grace through the person of Jesus Christ. What act is he referring to? Without any question, he's speaking of the one act of obedience when Christ died on the cross to pay for the sin of mankind. That's the free gift. That our Savior willingly took the wrath of God against sin. And now for all who would believe in him, he offers a free gift. What is that free gift? Righteousness, justification, life. Sin will not have dominion over you. That's the free gift. It's his solution to your sin problem. Now, here's why I think that's very important for you to understand. As Paul discusses this, he's not talking about a situation where we bring our fig leaves and we bring our loincloths and we say, hey, uh, I've gotten this far, God. Can you make my works, can you make my loincloths, can you make my fig leaves just a little prettier? That's not happening here. Paul is describing... A situation where we come empty-handed and we bring nothing except our sin. And then God in his merciful grace covers, forgives, atones through one man, Jesus Christ. If you bring, listen church, listen very carefully to me. If you bring any part of Adam to Jesus, you're not saved. And this is why I've been, I wrote to you Tuesday. This is what's on my heart this week. I think churches across our city, this metro area, and our country are filled with people who have brought their Adam's loincloths to God to just have his grace make them a little prettier. Could, could you make my fig leaves just a little better? But the free gift... Is not you and Christ on the cross. It's not your loincloths and fig leaves and then some of God's grace. It's, it's all of God's grace in the person of Christ for every bit of our sin. And make no mistake, you have piles. I have mounds. We have heaps of sin. In fact, in this passage, one of the things that I love the most about it is the consistent contrast between the amount of trespasses that Adam's uh, sin has duplicated. He uses the word trespasses several times. Remember, Adam sinned, and now there's many trespasses. But he says, there's one gift. There's one man, and it's greater and bigger than all of those sins. That's why today's take-home truth really is just a simple equation. Jesus is greater than your sin or your sins. Now think about this, church, as you glory in the cross of our Lord. You can pile up your sins... And my sins, I mean, individually, we have mounds and piles of sins, but here's what Jesus did. Here's how great the cross is. In three hours, God's grace, as seen in Jesus Christ, was so powerful, so magnificent, so beautiful, so majestic, that it not only covered the piles of your sin, it covered every sin from the past, present, and future for every person. So just pile all those up. 
Create the junkyard. Create the, the mounds of wickedness that Jesus bore in his body when he became sin for us. The one who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When you contemplate that, then you'll begin to see just how big God's grace is, how wonderful this free gift, and you won't approach the cross with your fig leaves and loincloths. You'll come in all of your nakedness and shame. You'll say, God, cover me with your grace. So my question to every single person here, regardless of how long you've been in this church, what your status is, where you work, what board you're on, what team you serve with, I have a question for you that begs answering. Have you come to the cross completely naked? Or have you corrupted contaminated the beautiful picture of God's all-sufficient grace by bringing your works for God to kind of work with. I say to you, on biblical authority and with strong confidence, any approach to God rooted in our work isn't an approach at all, and you're not even saved. You're fooling yourself. So I want you to examine, have you come to the cross empty-handed, I just need the free gift. See, the idea that the free gift means it's not earned, it's not merited, it's not anything you did. And so I need, you, I need you to think through this doctrine of sin and the ensuing solution because it is not within you to solve it. And if you've brought anything to that point when you thought, well, that's when I got saved, but if you brought your own works, your own merit, your own favor, and said, God, add to this, you've been fooling yourself. You're not genuine. You're using God as a tool. It's a crutch just to make you feel better about your life and you're not genuinely born again. And I say that not as an arrogant pastor, but as someone who deeply cares for the eternal destiny of your soul. And too many Christians in America have been sold a bill of goods when it comes to what it means to genuinely repent and be honestly, spiritually, truly, biblically born again. And we cannot approach the cross of Christ where the grace of God is personified in Jesus and bring anything with us. We come without our fig leaves and without our loincloths, and we depend solely, and we fall completely on the grace of God as the only way to be saved from our sins. Unless that has occurred, you have yet to be saved. So why do you wait? Would you this morning, and pardon my language here, Would you disrobe before God? Would you rid yourself of your good works and your fig leaves and your loincloths? And would you say, I'm in Adam, depraved and captive and in bondage. And I don't just need Jesus to help me a little bit. I need Jesus to save me totally and come without a single thing but open hands to receive the free gift of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I tend to think everyone here is probably a Christian. Did you know that? I preach sometimes like maybe no one is. I realize that, okay? 
But I realize that most of you probably are. Can I speak to those of you who aren't sure? And I speak plainly here for the sake of your soul. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives me reason and evidence and proof to say that if you're not sure you're a Christian, if you can't recall some general season of life when you made the crossover from death to life, if there isn't some semblance of like, this is when God changed me. This is when I heard the gospel and took my stand. on. I'm not saying an hour or date. I'm not one of those kind, but neither am I a nebulous. I've always been a Christian. I don't believe that's even possible. There is a point in time in which we hear the gospel. So the gospel, and, and there's a point in time in which you hear the right message of the gospel. The gospel is content sensitive and contact sensitive. You hear the message and you embrace it. First Corinthians 15. You heard it and you took your stand on it. If you're saying, Todd, I don't know if I've ever done that. Here's the truth, the plain truth, the pastoral truth. You probably haven't. I'm not trying to manipulate the crowd or generate decisions. I'm trying to help you save your soul. And if you're like, well, I guess maybe that was when my mom baptized me at eight days old. I guess that counts. That doesn't count. We're not saved by proxy from someone else without a recognition of sin and hearing the gospel message. Well, maybe I, I have a good family name. Does that help? Not for salvation. I was born in America. So what? Well, Todd, I gave a lot of money. Guys, I, I can't be crystal clear enough. There is a point in time in which we hear the truth about our sin and how it's solved. We move from saying we can solve it ourselves and we say only Jesus can solve it. When that occurs, we're born again. And until that occurs, we are not born again. Have you put all of your faith, which is given to you by God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ? If you haven't, would you today trust Christ to save you from your sin? Is it that important? For sure, because the only result of sin undealt with is death. That's its wages. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I call upon every person here who is wondering if they're even saved or who knows you're not saved to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the personification of God's grace and the free gift to us and believe in his name today. Have your sin dealt with by the one who's greater than all of your sin and all of your sins, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, can we?